1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. I am going to resist the temptation to re-preach all of 1 Peter right now by way of review to get us to this final passage. But I will say, 1 Peter is about the true grace of God. It's about the mercy of God by which we have been born again to a living hope. It's about being reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ that ransomed us from our sins. It's about God making us his people in this world. To reflect his grace and his glory, to proclaim his excellencies by living honorably among unbelievers in this world. We're given the promise in 1 Peter of a complete and full salvation, the fullness of grace that is going to be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns. It's a letter to us about the sojourning life. Starting in chapter 2, verse 11, the exhortations begin about how we're to live by God's grace, live faithfully to God, live honorably among the world. Live in this world, but belonging to another, which is Christ's kingdom. And it's in that context that we get this final call. The final call includes suffering. But we get the final promise. And the final promise is about God's glory given to us that we share. And then we get the final greeting which is a call for us to love. Suffering, glory, and love. Now, in writing this sermon yesterday, at this point, I stopped. And I want to stop from the flow and insert my thinking from yesterday morning. I had a strong desire to gather every member, every attender, Everyone connected to Grace Community Church. A strong desire to read again and discuss on a very personal level. To think through 
about our lives and to pray over the message of 1 Peter. The relevance of what is said in these verses cannot be overstated. There really is an adversary, the devil. He has always been active in history. He has always been active in human affairs. There has always been a spiritual battle in this world, and the devil has always opposed God since the time he fell. He has always opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has always opposed the church. He has always opposed every Christian. He has always sought to keep the world in darkness, and there is nothing new about this today. However, we live today. And the weight of our concern about the adversary's activity is today, in our time, among our people. We do not say, well, he's always been at work. We say, he has been at work and he is at work today. Without any exaggeration, from my perspective, From my personal perspective, I have not seen evidence of the attacks of the enemy on the church and on Christians and on truth and on God's word and on human dignity in my lifetime like I see today. It has been building, but never have I seen the results of the devil's scheming as I think we all see now, in how quickly the evident truth of God's word is being rejected, in how quickly human dignity, what it even means to be a human being created in the image of God for his purposes, is being redefined. The Christian community is divided, and Christians are falling away by falling for a version of Christianity that is tied more closely to cultural movements than it is to the crucified Christ and the way of the cross. And only spiritual blindness can explain how we could not see the devil's dark work behind the chaos and the idolatry of the world. And the confusion and the division and the unfaithfulness in the church. But man's extremity is God's opportunity. And so only the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to the reality and the wisdom and the hope that is being put before us in this inspired message from the Apostle Peter. Peter wrote with weight. He wrote with desire. He wrote with a sense of relevance and urgency for his own people in his own day Because he had first-hand experience with the devil who sifted him like wheat. But Christ sustained him. 
And he turned and he strengthened his brothers and he's doing it now in this letter. So now we are praying for the Holy Spirit to give us the same sense that we would see and feel and receive and obey the hope the hope that is in these words. Yes, the seriousness of our adversary, but the hope, the reason to press on in these words that the God of grace who has called us to glory will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. So we take it up today. First, this is a final call to be sober-minded and watchful because we have an adversary. Verses 8 and 9, he begins, be sober-minded, clear-minded. Don't be mentally intoxicated. Don't be drunk with untruth, with deception. Don't be drunk on self. I'm quoting A.W. Tozer when you hear me often say and talk about the self-hyphenated sins. I first read it from him. Don't be drunk with the self-hyphenated sins. Self-exaltation. Self-willed. Self-indulgent. Self-righteous. Self-deceived. On and on. That's the self-hyphenated life. Rather, he says, be mentally sober, be clear, be in the truth, be clear about the gospel, be clear about the lordship of Jesus Christ, be shaped by the truth of the Bible and under the control of the Holy Spirit. Be sober-minded by being aware of spiritual realities. Now, the first time Peter called for sober-mindedness was in chapter 1, when he did so for the purpose of setting the full weight of our hope on the grace that's to be revealed to us when Christ returns. He says, be sober-minded so that the hope that you have in this life and the life to come, 100% of that hope, the full hope, will be set on the fact that Christ will bring you grace when he returns and he will save you. Be sober-minded about that. The second time he called for sober-mindedness was in chapter 4. And he did so for the purpose of prayer. He said, be clear-minded, sober-minded in your thought, grounded in the truth, so that you can pray. Watch out, be aware, see what's happening, understand God's will, have the Bible, and pray well. And the third time is now. And he says, be sober-minded so that we can be, the next word, watchful. So that we can be alert. So that we can be discerning about the devil. So that we can be suspecting of his schemes. Life is full of these kinds of admonitions. Be aware. Watch out. Wake up. Get your head in the game, we say to the kid looking for four-leaf clovers in left field. 
Beware the dog as you're meandering through what you think is a nice meadow of flowers. Pay attention to your surroundings, I said to my daughters when they began to drive and leave home without me. So the Lord says, think clearly. Open your eyes. Know the truth. Know yourself. Know your tendencies. Know your enemy. Know the weapons of your warfare. Know Christ. And watch. Be watchful for the devil. Why? Next phrase. Because he is your adversary. Your adversary the devil. He is a spiritual personality, a real being with a name. His name is Satan. Satan itself means adversary, accuser, slanderer, and deceiver. And that's one of the reasons that I can't use the words devil or Satan lightly. Not out of respect for him, and not because I'm afraid of him, but because I am sober-minded and serious about his schemes. I don't want to be playful. Playfulness makes us vulnerable. The devil is a real spiritual being like the other angels. And he opposed God. And that's why we call him the fallen angel. He opposes God He opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is absolutely opposed to the advance of the gospel in this world, to the conversion of people and the health and the growth of the church. He's absolutely opposed to your growth in holiness. He does not want you to become like Christ. He is opposed to the will of God and the truth of the Bible. The devil is actively in rebellion against God and against his kingdom. And he is powerful. But he is powerful only as God mysteriously allows him to exercise power and influence in this world. He is not all powerful, he is not sovereign. In fact, we'll say again, he has no power without God allowing him to use power in some mysterious way for God's ultimate purpose and for his glory. See the book of Job. Hear Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, when he says a thorn in the flesh was given to him that was a messenger from Satan, but at the same time kept him humble and dependent upon Christ. It's a mystery. He can harm, but lo, his doom is sure. And one little word shall fail him. Tear that song out of your bulletin this morning and tuck it in your pocket or Bible or somewhere and read it and sing it every day this week. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Intelligently and skillfully, he hunts his prey. And he uses the most subtle means to twist the truth, to deceive the mind, to accuse God, and to captivate souls.
The devil was prowling around as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3. The devil was prowling among the sons of God when he accused Job. Job chapter 1. The devil was prowling in the wilderness when he tempted Jesus. But he overplayed his hand. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, mysteriously overcame the temptation of the devil. And through spiritual union with him, that obedience and that righteousness of Jesus is granted to us in our justification before God. And yet, he still prowls. He prowls among us today. He accuses God. That's what he's doing today. He is accusing God to us. He is speaking to us accusations against God. Did God really say that's an accusation against God? Does God really care? That's an accusation against God. Is God really love? That's an accusation against God. Will God really win in the end? On and on with his accusations that are disguised as questions. Those are not questions. They are accusations against God to us. He accuses God's truth. Making the plain truth seem to be the real problem. Have you noticed that if you speak a simple, direct, propositional truth, that can be received as the problem? That's an accusation against God's truth. Twisting the plain truth to make it into a new truth that seems like a real truth. He accuses us to ourselves. He says to our minds, are you really a Christian? I have heard this so many times from Christians who ask, am I really a Christian? Not because they don't believe, but because they have failed. Because they have struggled. Because they have not measured up in some way to their own or someone else's expectations. And the accusation of the enemy is, you're not really a Christian. He accuses us to ourselves when he says, but you've sinned, you always will sin, so you might as well keep sinning. Again, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to someone and the thought process is this. It doesn't seem like there's anything I can do to overcome sin, so I might as well just continue in it. It's an accusation of the devil. And he accuses others to us when he insinuates that other people are our problem. They don't like you. They are against you. Watch out for them. They are your problem. All of these are designed to deceive our minds. 
They are designed to take us away from Christ and his kingdom. They are designed to destroy our faith, keep us in darkness, and prevent us from seeing God's glory. And it is evil. Are you aware, brothers and sisters? Are you sober-minded? Are you watching for these things? Are you watching for the many other schemes of the devil that we don't have time to even begin tracing out? Peter is saying, Christian, sober up. Wake up. As Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray. First, rebuke yourself. (laughs) You can do that. It's a good thing. Rebuke yourself. I rebuke myself probably every day. Rebuke yourself for being naively unaware, for downplaying the devil. For being distracted with pleasures. Rebuke yourself for being easy prey of the devil. And then, verse 9, he says, Resist him, firm in your faith. Don't deny that there is an adversary. And don't ignore him. And don't give in to him. Resist him mightily with all of your might. There is a version of effortless Christianity that will do you no good. You are not saved by your efforts, not one bit. You cannot do enough to remove the guilt of your sin and to dress yourself in righteousness to stand before God. But the child of God is told by God To use all the resources that he has given us, the full strength of our might, to resist him. To do it mightily and to do it mercilessly. Resist him firm in your faith is the next phrase. Firm in your faith in Christ. Firm in your faith in the truth of God's word. Say it to yourself over and over. This is true. This is true. No matter how many times you're told it's not true, that it's outdated, that it doesn't relate to modern society. It is true. Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith in God's power to keep you. He will keep you. You cannot keep yourself. He will keep you. Firm in your faith in God's provision for the resistance. Resist him. And he has provided for the resistance. We can take our minds to Ephesians 6. Read it when you go home. I'll just touch on it here. Ephesians 6. He has provided armor for the resistance. And he gives us six things. Truth, righteousness, peace, Faith, salvation, and the word. Are you girded up in truth? God's word is truth. Are you established in the truth, in the Bible? Do you see it as established and fixed and relevant to your life? This is your armor. This is your resistance. Righteousness. Are you living righteously? This is a form. Living a righteous life is a form of resistance against the enemy. It's a form of protection against his schemes. Peace, the gospel of peace. Resist him with the gospel by reminding yourself that you stand at peace with God. 
Faith, trust in God. Use it. Use God's promises by faith in prayer as you fight the devil. Salvation, are you a Christian? The very first form of resistance against the schemes of the devil is to repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and become a Christian. Begin to follow Christ and the Word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit. It both defends and it kills lying spirits. So with these weapons, prayerfully, mentally, actively resist the devil and every accusation, every temptation, every deception that he throws at you. And he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Brothers and sisters throughout the world are resisting as we are. Take, take encouragement in that. There is solidarity with you and me and Grace Community Church in Nashville and our brothers and sisters in India in North Korea, of all places, where the curtain is still veiling from our eyes who they are and what their life is like, but we know they're there. There's a solidarity because our brothers and sisters throughout the world are experiencing this same kind of suffering. Resist him, and he will flee. God gives the victory. Resistance works. And you may be questioning that. You may be saying, I've been resisting. I've been trying. I keep falling. I keep failing. You, you may fail, but you won't fall away. You may fail, but he'll keep you. And you keep resisting. And James says in his letter, you resist him and he will flee from you. This is a promise from God that Regardless of what it feels like at the moment, and we sense about it all, we have, to, we have to be firm in this faith that resistance works. God gives the victory, but he wants to train sons and daughters in faith. And so he commands us to use our resistance, and he will use our resistance to get the victory in our lives. This is the way God works. Lord, help us. Now, I don't want to spend all of our time on the devil. Because we need to know that there is a reason for us to hope that our resistance will actually work. So we move to the final promise. And the final promise is the promise of glory that will be ours after we have suffered. Verse 10, this is what God will do and what God must do for God to get the glory. He says, after you, and he's speaking to us, so we can say, after we have suffered a little while. Suffered. Suffering comes in so many forms. Crucifying the flesh is a form of suffering. It hurts to say no, doesn't it? It hurts to hear no, doesn't it? Suffering comes in the opposition from the world. We all want to be liked. Here, the suffering is specifically the suffering that we go through by resisting the accusations and the attacks and the temptations of the devil. He says, 
after you've suffered for a little while. Once again, Peter brings in the time element. He raised it first back in in chapter 4 when he said, the end of all things is at hand. And we think, wow, when is that? It's been 2,000 years and we're still here. Do you remember what we said? At hand means next. The time may be one year. The time may be a thousand more years. It's just next. The end of all things is next. Here he says it this way. After you've suffered a little while. A little while meaning in relation to eternity. Whatever suffering we have in this world, forever how long, in relation to eternity, it will feel, it will be like it's just a little while. One year or a thousand years. It's God's appointed time. In God's time, God himself will act. God is actively now sustaining us. And so in a sense, these words we're going to read about what God will do are happening now. He's doing them now. But he will do them completely and fully when he returns after we have suffered forever when we stand before Christ. The God of all grace he's called. This is all the true grace of God he mentions in verse 12. It's God's grace to change our standing before him and sustain us before him and give us the sustaining power of the sojourning life. This is God's grace. You and I are here this morning. We're in Christ this morning. We still believe this morning. We're still fighting sin this morning. We still love each other this morning. Why? Because of God's sustaining grace. He's the God of all grace. His grace will be revealed when Christ returns. He's called us. Look what it says. He has called us to this grace. In Christ. This God of all grace is going to do this. After we've suffered a little while, He will restore us. He restores our souls. That's the 23rd Psalm. He restores our souls. The weary soul will be restored. The chunk of our soul that feels like it's been left on the battlefield in the fight is going to be restored. The joy of Christ is going to be renewed. He will keep us and make us full-souled people. Before his throne. He restores our souls every day now so we can continue on. And someday we will be filled to the fullness of God. And he will confirm us. As he gets us all the way to glory by grace, we will be confirmed to be his. Your doubts now, am I really a Christian? Am I really going to make it? Is he going to get me all the way home faithful? Those doubts will be gone because someday you will stand before Christ. You will stand before God. You will stand there blameless. And he will say as you stand there, now it is confirmed. What I said to you, what I told you, what I promised you, it is confirmed. You are mine. He will get us all the way there. And he will strengthen us. He will strengthen us in the fight right now. He will strengthen us through the fight. In fact, in the fight, we actually grow stronger 
as we prove him strong. He will strengthen us when the fight is over. We will stand before Christ strong enough to worship him. And he will establish us Standing before him, blameless and without spot or wrinkle, we will say, finally established, finally immovable. Not only in our faith, but even in our emotions, even in our mental state, immovable before Christ in faith. Now, this happens to some degree. These these four things, restoring, confirming, strengthening, establishing, they happen to some degree now. He does that now. He does that every morning when we get up. He does that every time we open the Word and pray. Every time we gather as His people for prayer and worship and singing in the Word. He does, he, he does every one of these things now. But these are the things that He will do in fullness and in completion as we remain faithful to Him and are carried along by His grace, resisting the devil. Restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. And He can do this. Because verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. The dominion, the power, the rule, the authority. He reigns, he's sovereign, he's Lord. And the Bible's graphic. The Bible's graphic. Here's one of the most graphic passages in all the Bible. It's not in the book of Judges either. It's Romans 16, verse 20. He will crush Satan under our feet. See, how is that? Because we will reign with Christ. Do you remember Genesis 3? The serpent's head will be crushed by the heel of the one who comes from the woman. And that's Christ. And we are in him by union. We belong to Christ. And we will reign with him. And because we will, he will crush Satan under our feet. And this promise is meant to pull us forward in faith and faithfulness and in hope. This promise is meant to help us to press on and help us not to grow weary. This promise is meant to strengthen our feeble knees and our drooping hands so that we'll fight on. The promise of glory after our suffering is to loom larger in our sober minds than the suffering we will experience as we resist the devil. May the Lord grant it to us. And then finally, the greetings. Silvanus, verse 12, that's Silas. He was Paul's and Peter's companion and helper. He'll greet you when he brings you this letter. It's commonly understood that Silas, Silvanus, is the one who actually traveled with the letter to the churches in the northern part of Asia Minor, which we now know as Turkey. He greets you. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon greets you. At least one person I have read thinks that she was Peter's wife. Most people believe that it's a reference to the church. 
the bride of Christ in Babylon. Babylon, the Old Testament city that was the symbol of rebellion against God. In the New Testament, where Peter is, he's probably using Babylon to refer to where he is in prison, and that is Rome. The point is that God has his chosen people in every place that rebels against him, every place of opposition against him, and the chosen here are greeting the chosen there. We have solidarity with the church around the world. In verse 13, Mark, Peter's spiritual son, he's the gospel writer. When you read the gospel of Mark, you read a bit of uniqueness about Peter because Peter and Mark were so close. He too greets you. And then the favorite verse of the post-COVID church, (laughs) greet one another with the kiss of love. Whatever culturally appropriate, non-sexual show of affection, use it. I ran from the kiss of love one day in the country of Belarus. (laughs) I showed up to a church to speak. It was outside of the city, which means it was out in a rural village and most of the people in the congregation were of the previous generation. They had lived through the Soviet era. And these two brothers who were at least my age, but possibly 10 years ahead of me, walked in And when they greeted one another, it was a kiss of love. And I mean, not on the cheek. And I started using every excuse I could to get away from them for fear of what would happen. Because I didn't know how to say culturally inappropriate in Russian. This tells us, though, that the greeting, whatever it is, is an expression of love. Love one another. That's what he means. Love one another. The benediction is peace to all of you who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you a Christian? Come to faith in Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn from yourself. Don't trust yourself. Throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus. He loves you. He welcomes you. It doesn't matter what you've done, who you are, where you've been. He welcomes every, every, every repentant sinner. Come to Christ. And you will have peace. And if you are a Christian, peace to you. Be at peace. The God of all grace, who called you into the glory of Christ, he's going to strengthen you and establish you and comfort you and guide you and keep you and build you and grow you and get you all the way home. And so we close our time in this letter. For now, we sojourn on 2 Peter next week.